Hello and welcome to the Low Tech Lecture Series. The following is an unedited lecture of a topic tangential to the Low Technology Institute. The ideas expressed are those of the speaker. We hope you find it informative and entertaining. As it is unedited, audio quality varies. Stay tuned after the lecture for information about the Low Technology Institute and its other offerings, or find us at lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. Thanks and enjoy. This lecture series is a recording of the class Archaeology in the Prehistoric World from the spring semester of 2017, taught by Scott Johnson. Uh, I'm a little more energetic, just I sound like crap, so I apologize for that, uh, especially those listening on the recording. Sound like I have stock, socks stuff up my nose or something. I don't. Okay, uh, today we are starting a deep dive into social archaeology. Um, so if you do social anthropology, right, which is a lot of what anthropology is, is looking at cultures, people, and things like that. That's kind of what we're trying to reproduce here in archaeology, although we have a very limited skill set because we're dealing with a limited, uh, limited types of evidence. So we're going to talk about the different types of evidence and how we know about societies in the past. This will lead into a discussion of uh, religion, uh, art. Then um, eventually, uh, after this, we'll be talking about the ancient Egyptians and how their society changed over time. Um, I meant to have a mentee for us today, but my computer crashed, so I will have it for us next time to uh, review our uh, ancient Romans. Excuse me. All right, uh, so first we're going to go over basic definitions, and then we'll talk about how archaeologists, this, will, this is like the, the run of the whole topic, so you don't have to get it all down right now, but first we'll go over basic definitions about societies and things like that. Then we'll talk about how we divide societies into different categories. Um, not that it's the only way to do it, but uh, one way or one group of categories that you'll often come across in archaeological writing is band, tribe, chiefdom, and state. So we'll talk about those. And we'll talk about what archaeological correlates we use to uh, identify different uh, types of groups. And then we'll talk about modern social divisions and how we see them archaeologically. Um, and by modern, I mean like last few thousand years. <laughs> For me, that's modern. All right, basic definitions. A society is an organized group of people associated together for mutual benefit. Uh, that's the definition we'll be using, although you could pick it apart and debate it if you wanted to. I don't want to, but uh, an organized group of people associated together for mutual benefit. Um, that definition always reminds me of uh, in New Orleans, they have crews and they have other groups that uh, were originally formed. They were like social clubs, and uh, you'd pay in dues and things like that. When you died, they were the ones that were responsible for doing like the New Orleans-style funeral and things like that around your death, and they would help out your family, right? So it was a social aid and pleasure club. Uh, Zulu is one of the most uh, famous uh, heavily African-American ones. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them. Um, so I always think of, of these social aid and pleasure clubs when I hear the, this definition of society, right? It's people, they decide to work, live, get along together in order to help one another out. In the past, this, you'd have to be almost in person. Okay, so I make the distinction uh, in my dissertation, which I haven't really talked about much because it's not very interesting. But one interesting division I make is that there are two types of, I guess, societies or communities. There's physical ones that you actually have to be in the location of to be engaged in, right? Like 
being here at the college, right? That is a physical community where we interact with one another, we help each other out. If something you know bad happened at the school, we would probably you know all band together and help each other out, right? If the fire alarm went, we're not going to just like leave someone screaming on the floor. We're you know going to help them out, things like that, right? And then there are, uh, I guess you would call them imaginary communities or uh, cognitive communities, right? Like if you belong to, let's say you belong to like, let's say you are a card-carrying Jedi, right? Because it's a recognized religion. And then you know you go travel to I don't know where the hotbeds of Jediism are New York San Francisco I don't know Silicon Valley who knows, and you go there you might be able to you know through uh, through membership in that society even though you don't know anybody you could find a place to stay a couch to surf on a park to go LARP in I don't know right so there are uh, different ways we can and now more seriously religion is often uh, one way that. Um, societies that don't live together still work together, right? If you are traveling in the ancient world, you might go to your religious temple of choice and find people who are your co-religionists, and uh, they might give you a hand if you are in need. So there's different ways for societies to work together. Um, there's no one size. A society could be just a few people. Um, there's a group of uh, so-called old believers in Russia. They were uh, during the Russian Revolution, they fled. Um, or before the Russian Re Revolution, during a religious reform, they fled in like the 1800s. And then during the Russian Revolution, they fled even farther. And it was, there was one family that ran deep into the Siberian wilderness and lived by themselves. They would technically be a society, even though it was a small family. Um, and it could be as large as, you know, if we were contacted by uh, aliens, we could all consider ourselves to be part of the Earth Society. Um, so it's all relative. All right. And of course, for archaeologists, it's important that we understand um, we understand this, uh, what societies we're looking at so we can look for the right correlates. Uh, the size of a society, like I kind of alluded to, it can be very small to very large. Um, I love this picture. It was uh, there was an article a couple of years ago about how some uncontacted tribe in the Amazon, was like freaking out when a helicopter flew over. My thought was, where'd they get this picture? Um, <laughs> probably a different, uh, probably a different community. Okay. Hierarchy, which I realize is kind of hard to read here. Oops. Uh, so a hierarchy is a relative dominance or independence of societies or segments within a society. So there are even in societies that. Say, you know, anybody can become the leader of the country, for example. Or anybody could become the leader of the free world. Um, we, have, uh, we still have hierarchy within our society. There are some people or groups that have more social, economic, or political power than others. Uh, that's pretty common in large-scale societies. But even in small societies, uh, there will be people, individuals who dominate the relationships. If, does anyone watch the show Survivor? I yeah. All right. I my, it's like my wife's dream to be like she loves that show and her whole family is like her whole family is like nuts for the show. So I uh, I absorb it through osmosis. Um, anyway, there's always like one player who's like pulling all the strings or thinks they're pulling all the strings, right? So no matter the size, there's certainly uh, segregation. Uh, and I mean like hierarchical segregation. I don't mean like 
the old US way of segregation uh, uh, within the society where segments get ranked. Um, yeah, okay. And a polity, I've already mentioned polities before, but polities, an autonomous administrative unit, an autonomous administrative unit ranging from a city state to a nation state. The main idea is that it is some sort of state, right? It is a government, it has its own governmental organization, and it is recognized as not um, impeded by others around, right? It's autonomous. So it's able to make and affect laws uh, within its own territory. And, you know, there's some finer gradations of that, like there are certainly nesting polities, like we have municipal type polities in the US, and then we have county, and then we have state, and then we have federal. And you could make an argument that to some extent they are autonomous, uh, although they are heavily interacting. But really here what we're talking about are like countries, uh, or countries that are even small countries like they used to have in like different kingdoms or things, uh, like they used to have in Italy or Europe. Uh, where within the borders they're pretty much uh, free to do what they want, although you could argue even nation states today, if they're members of the UN or things like that, they might have law, international norms and laws. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't be dropping bombs on other countries that are technically autonomous, right? Uh, the uh, recent uh, missile strikes were because uh, Syria was violating international norms. Well, if Syria is a polity, it's autonomous. It can do whatever the heck it wants. Bombing women and children. Fine, that's autonomy, right? No. So you could argue that today we have very few autonomous, actual, real autonomous polities, but we would still call them polities because we like to pretend that we have. I don't know where I am today. Okay. So uh, traditionally, in archaeology, and you will hear this used all the time, we have four divisions of societies, or four categories into which societies fall. These are not the only four. Uh, the way I'm going to present them is like the classic definition. There are uh, people who have modified them and updated them. Uh, there are finer gradations within them. But these four words, when people are talking about societies, come up more than any other. They were, um, they were first published in 1971 by Elman Service. Um, they're modified by others later on, but we'll talk about services that are called services, classic social divisions or something like that. Um, so a band. A band is the first one. Uh, this is not a, uh, a rock band or anything like this. This is more like a, an extended family. So it's a small-scale society of hunter and gatherers. So if you've, I read this great book uh, about a social, sociocultural anthropologist who lived with reindeer herders in Siberia. And they would ride their reindeer around and herd these big herds of reindeer um, through Siberia. And they would like sleep in tents and it'd be like 40 below outside and they'd be like, you know, drinking, carrying on in the tents and having a good time. That was a band. A uh, couple dozen people all living, working together. Um, less than 100. A uh, band cannot be larger than 100. However, oftentimes bands will come together for like, it always reminds me of like Boy Scout jamborees, right? A Boy Scout troop might be considered a band if they were independent and 
I don't know, being children of the corn. But then they all come together for their jamboree, right? Um, I don't know if Girl Scouts have the equivalent. I don't know where anyone, was anyone a Girl Scout? Do they have jamborees? I imagine they have national meetups. I don't know. Anyway, I should ask my nieces there in the Scouts. Anyway, uh, so they meet up uh, occasionally, like uh, seasonally. A lot of times hunter-gatherers, for example, in the New World would have like specific locations where rivers came together or mountain-type uh, ranges or there were specific spots where they would meet up probably every year or maybe every other year and they would... Um, we have to remember these are small groups. Usually what they would do to avoid incest is um, all the women would stay in the group and the sons would leave and find their way in new bands or alternatively you'd have all men that would stay and then the uh, the daughters would be uh, farmed out to the other to other bands to find their own new families. So when they had these meetups, they would actually get to see their parents again often, right? Because your parents, if you were a son or a daughter, depending on which one left the, fa the normal family unit, um, you, this is when you would see your parents, which is kind of fun. And you'd see your, you know, your sisters and brothers and your cousins and whatever. So it would be like a giant family reunion and also um, you know, you'd be seeing a lot of people who weren't technically related to you. So this would be where you'd look for marriage partners. This would be where you would do a lot of trading, right? So even though they were bands and they were, for the most part, living alone uh, in their small groups, moving across the landscape, hunting and gathering, they would still meet up for large uh, jamborees. I like keep calling them that. It's kind of fun. Leadership in bands is informal and task-specific. What that means is that a band didn't have, like, one leader who was telling everyone what to do all the time. Um, bands were often led by task masters, I like to call them, right? So a person who is, let's say, hey, we need to go hunting. We're a little short on meat. Um, Frank, you're a great hunter. Why don't you organize a hunting party? Frank's like, all right, cool. And Frank goes and leads his hunting party. And they say, OK. Uh, Billy, you're really good at finding salmon. Why don't you go take a group and find some salmon? Billy says, okay. And Vanessa, you're really great at, I don't know what's Vanessa great at, um, finding rabbits. Go find rabbits, right, with a group of people. So those people would be picked to lead different tasks because they were good at them. And they would go do them and come back. Um, usually, uh, the town would just get together. It was small in a town. The group would get together and make decisions usually by discussion and consensus because that's what was going on. Sometimes you have groups that were uh, patrilineal and run by men. Sometimes you had groups that were matrilineal and ran by women. And again, if you have your society and all the sons leave, and so all the marriage partners are new and unrelated people who come in, you might have a very strong matrilineal society where it's always the women who are together their whole lives, and it's the mothers and their daughters and their daughters. So they might hold a lot of power and vice versa. So usually we see that some sort of correlation by whoever has to leave, they're the uh, less dominant sex. Often, but not always, there are alternatives. So, but that's pretty common. Their social organization, as I was kind of saying, was egalitarian. That is, um, there wasn't usually a person who was leaps and bounds above somebody else in status. Because status in this society was based on your skill uh, and your own individual merit. So you could be born to somebody who was a complete loser, uh, who 
couldn't do anything for the band and we were pariah and nobody liked him or her, but you could be amazing and you could rise to the top. And vice versa, you could be the, the child of an amazing person who did so much for the band and you could just, you know, be terrible. So it didn't matter. Um, yeah. And so social organization was kin-based. You were either you were living with a lot of people whom you were related to, um, or you were the person who left and lived with a group that within that group everyone was related. Economy was informal, ad hoc, right? Uh, ad hoc is just um, kind of Latin for random, more or less. Uh, so you know you're traipsing through the forest or across the plains, and you bump into you know, your cousin's band or someone you don't know or someone you do know, and you say, hey, we just happen to have a whole bunch of extra salmon. Do you guys have anything to trade for it? And they'll say, oh, we have all this extra obsidian we don't want. Hey, let's make a trade. So it was kind of opportunistic. When they bumped into other people, they would trade. Um, sometimes they would trade people. Uh, and I don't mean trade people like slaves. I mean, like, but that was a little less common that someone would just jump ship. However, if you were in a fight, let's say Dirk and I are in a band and we get in a fight, and you know this band isn't big enough for the two of us. One of us might be like, "Screw you guys! I'm going with this other band." Right? That could happen. Um, and that's often one way. If you're living in a small group, you have to have social mechanisms to keep conflict down. Otherwise, you get people killing each other, and that did happen. Of course, I'm not saying this was all like fairy dust and utopian BS. Uh, people killed each other, but they usually did it for a reason. Like you, I don't know, scuffed my boots. No, probably something a little more serious. You uh, found you. Okay, I'm not going to go into reasons why I'm mad at Dirk. Um, but there could be serious enough reasons where we could be in a, a mortal death match, right? Uh, so one of us might leave. Also, bands would uh, split because they got too big. If you had over 100 people, and 100 is a vague number, there were certainly bands bigger than 100, and there are certainly bands that split before they reached 100. It's not like, oh, we're at 100 people, let's split. Um, people would often say, hey, it's getting really hard to forage with this group. We're too large. It's taking too long to move. It's just too much all concentrated in one area. Why don't we split in half? And that happened pretty often. Um, as groups got larger, they'd split. Or as they died down, let's say there was a, an a epidemic and half the people died off, they might join together. I almost said band together, which would work too. They would band together with another group. Uh, their, and obviously, their economy was barter and trade. Um, unless they were living on the edge of a society with fiat currency or other types of currency, they didn't use currency. However, bands do use currency if they are trading with, um, say, you're a band of Germanic uh, warriors and you are trading with the Roman Empire, you might accept their coins because you know that they will accept the coins back from you later. Their settlement as the hunter-gatherer implies, they are temporary settlement people. They don't have villages. The most they will have are long-term seasonal camps that they'll come back to. That's a band. This is, what, um, this is what all humans lived in until 10,000 years ago. Everybody lived in bands. There were, there's, uh, okay, excuse me. Let me rephrase that. There is no evidence of us having lived in anything other than bands up until 10,000 years ago. So that would be the, a completely accurate statement. There could be, who knows, maybe we'll find something. Um, modern examples are the Inuit, formerly called Eskimos, but we don't call them that anymore. 
and the sun, which are also called, used to be called the Bushmen. Uh, perhaps, how many of you have seen uh, The Gods Must Be Crazy? No? I haven't seen Gods Must Be Crazy. It's a super, like, I don't know, it's kind of a funny, uh, it's a movie from, I think, the 60s or 70s, um, and it centers around a group of Kalahari Bushmen um, who are really called the Sun or the Kong Sun. In archaeology, how do we see bands? They're really small sites and they're seasonal sites. So we'll find like a campsite or we'll find a butchery site. We won't find like townhouses with like a big trash pit in the back. We'll find like a fire ring with like bones from a dead elk, things like that. Uh, we'll find a tent ring. We'll find you know, maybe, maybe a winter camp would be the longest sort of thing. We can also tell that basically any site, Paleolithic or older, is going to be a band site. So there's chronology there, too. We can, um, there are two kind of ways that we look at bands in archaeology. Intrasite means within the site itself we do analysis, right? So um, if you come to that butchery site, you might look at what types of stone tools are present, what types of animal bones are present, um, you know, how long it looks like they live there based on mm, uh, the depth and complexity of the, of the remains. And so we would have to very carefully excavate that whole area and look for all of the clues that we could possibly get. Extra site models, this is when we're looking beyond uh, an individual site to a group of sites. We might look for seasonal site identification. Remember how we can find that somebody was at a site because, say, in this, uh, let's say if someone's using a cave for their winter home, you might find animals like uh, deer that are in their winter stage of life, right? So they have shed their antlers, perhaps. I guess that would be early spring. Um, Right, but we could find different uh, types of animal evidence to show what season it was. Uh, if there's only certain fruits or vegetables that are available in the fall, for example, that might indicate um, what season we're in. I have anything else for that? Boop, boop, boop. Nope. Uh, okay. And uh, finally, when we're looking at band studies, we look at the relationships of people. Really, in all of these, we're looking at the relationships of people and how they get along with one another. Now, obviously, um, we know that kinship is a different kinship or blood relation or what is considered to be blood relation by the society because not everybody has the same idea of what is a blood relation as we do uh, in the US or in Western medicine. For example, Let's say, so this is a genealogy chart that we use in anthropology. And uh, each one of these is, uh, the triangle is uh, male and the circle is female. And so these are, um, so basically we have a set of parents who had a daughter, a son, and a daughter. And they all got married. Now. They have kids, let's say here, and then let's do this one here. So they have kids. But because this, in, in some societies, even though we would consider these people cousins because this person, this boy's 
father's sister is his aunt, so both of these kids would be his cousins in our system that we use in, in, in English-speaking America, right? Uh, generally, that's the case. But in some societies, because this daughter married this man who belongs to a different family, she is now no longer considered uh, necessarily part of the family in a technical sense, even though he's not going to be like, that's not my sister, I don't know who that woman is. No, he would say, it's my sister, of course, but no, she's in that family now. So, there's a family line here. So her kids, even though we would see them as blood relatives, as cousins, first cousins, these are not cousins in this society. Therefore, they are eligible marriage partners. This is called cross-cousin marriage. And this type of marriage, maybe this son to this daughter, is actually seen as a very... If, now you have to remember, if they're not considered to be blood relations, then it's perfectly okay for them to be married. Just put out of your mind any idea about cousin marrying your cousin in our society. Just put that out of your mind. If they're not cousins, they can get married. And what a great relationship. We've already married, this family has already married one daughter to this lineage. How much better then that we marry another daughter into this lineage? It strengthens our the ties between our families. Okay? Like, I'm not saying you have to go do it. I'm just hoping that you, under, that you understand that, right? So there's a, these are different relationships and very complex relationships. And just because, and this is the extreme caution I have here on the slide, you can't just say because there are societies today that do this that they were doing it in the past. Similarly, you can't say that these, the things that we see going on today are the only ways that people in the past lived, right? Uh, people in the past have uh, we've gone through thousands of years of uh, cultural and uh, individual evolution uh, and so what's available today to us is only a po the, the realm of possibilities of the past but it may not have all the realms of possibilities in the past because our world is completely different now and that's true now and it's true a hundred years ago and a thousand years ago the world is always changing so we can't always just say well the Kung Song Bushmen or the Inuit who live in traditional ways they are relics of the past, or they are like the Amazon, the people in the Amazon. Every time I read a New York Times article or other article about, oh, the uncontacted tribes in the Amazon are like examples of what life was like 10,000 years ago. Well, I mean, to some extent, on the very superficial level, sure, they're not agriculturalists, or some of them are, but you know, if they're hunter-gatherers, they're not agriculturalists. Well, on that like one thing, yeah. But they're interacting with us. They're being exposed to diseases that otherwise they wouldn't. Uh, they're perhaps trading with people who are using industrial products. So like you can't say that they're the same and they're untouched. Like that doesn't. That's not a thing. They've and even if they were, even if they were completely isolated, let's say in some special valley that nobody knew about for ten thousand years, from when you know people split off or whatever. Well, they've gone through their own cultural evolution, and they're going to be completely different. So you can't look at them as fossils, as living fossils. That's just, that disregards all the changes that they've, the unique trajectory that their society has gone through. So anyway, we have to be really careful when we look at people living today in bands and say, we can't just say, well, that's how we lived. It's exactly the same. We have to be really careful. And we can say, well, people today living like this, let's say people who are hunting this type of animal, they do it this way. If we look at the archaeological record and we see very similar types of tools, very different, or very similar types of butchery patterns, um, maybe distribution of the bones, like 
ooh, the mother-in-law always gets the, the boar's head, something like that. If we see that archaeologically, then cool, but you can't just say it without evidence. <laughs> I say that because people used to do it. All right. Tribes. Uh, this has nothing to do with the legal definition of tribe in the United States. There is a legal definition of recognized tribes by the United States government, which means you are a recognized band of indigenous uh, Americans uh, or Canadians or Mexicans or whatever. Uh, this is nothing to do with that. This is just simply tribe. Uh, it is a larger group than a band. It's a larger society dependent on cultivated plants and animals. A tribe in the U.S. legal sense, you could be hunter-gatherers, you could be industrial farmers. It doesn't matter, you're still a tribe. In anthropology and in archaeology, when you read the word, word tribe, it means this. It means a society dependent on cultivated plants and animals, larger than a band, but still a couple thousand people, a few thousand. Um, the leadership in a tribe is informal. Usually you'd have like a, a council, a, a group of elders perhaps. They also would um, occasionally elect leaders. Uh, sometimes these were task-related leaders. Hey, uh, we need to dig a new canal. Um, Denisha, you're really great at uh, canal engineering. Why don't you head that committee up? So it'd be like committees and things like that. Um, the social organization, um, they would have kind of like you would have a, a mascot or a high school sort of like what high school do you go to, right? Like I think uh, in the anthropological sense, in a town with more than one high school, the kids tend to get segregated into kind of like tribal-based organizations. Like, oh, what high school do you go? Oh, you go to West? Oh, I don't, I don't know the schools of Madison, so I'm not saying anything about the schools here. I'm just saying like West versus East is a pretty common trope. In where I was, we only had one high school, so we didn't have this. Um, so, you know, it's kind of tribal. Like, oh, Eastern, you know, uh, kids that go to East High are this way. And, Kids that go to West High are this way, right? So it's kind of that tribal level kind of distinction. Uh, very kind of similar, anthropologically speaking. Um, and people would be associated with everyone else in their tribe, um, even if they're not necessarily co-sanguines, or um, co-sanguines just means blood-related. So if you're not, even if you're not blood-related to somebody, if you're from the same tribe, you have some sort of... Uh, a deeper relationship than just a random person, right? You are somehow from the same place. Right now, it's, you know, with people in the United States who move around a lot, uh, you end up having friends maybe from your hometown. Or you meet someone from your hometown, especially if you're farther away, it's more exciting. Like, uh, we just recently met some people here in Madison, because we just moved to Madison, so we don't know many people. And uh, we just met some people through friends of my wife. And... Uh, Turns out one of the people there was like best friends with all my friends from high school that went to UW. She's like, oh, you know so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. I was like, yeah, we used to go camping all the time. We were friends, da-da-da-da. And so that's kind of like that tribal sort of thing. Like, I'm not friends with this person, but her friends are my friends. So hey, we can be simpatico. So she's, it's like her being friends with people out of my tribe. Similar sort of situation here. People are associated across the tribe, even if they're not blood-related.
the economy is more organized. So if you think about it, what does it mean to be dependent on cultivated plants and animals? This means you're sedentary. You have houses. You live there all the time, right? So that's a completely different way of life than a mobile hunter-gatherer band. So you're going to have a marketplace. You're going to have a store. You're going to have um, granaries. You're going to have fixed infrastructure that runs your economy. Um, so yeah, markets are really common. Uh, they might be like weekly markets. If you're in a big, bigger town, uh, it might be a more often uh, market. You're going to have trade in, uh, remember in the bands, I might not have mentioned this, most of the time in the band, unless you like ad hoc exchange something to get that obsidian for the fish that I talked about, if you need obsidian, you damn well march yourself over to the obsidian mountain and get your obsidian in a tribe because you are sedentary living in one place, you'll often trade things down the line. So you will have the market, you'll go to the market when you need obsidian and, and a stone trader will come in and have that stone for you or more likely he'll or he or she will make those blades for you. Spoiler alert, I already spoiled this, uh, settlement is permanent. Um, resource gathering trips so often, even if you're dependent on cultivated plants and animals, uh, people will often still go on, especially like hunting trips or gathering trips. So think about like, oh, we're going up to the sugar shack in the spring to tap maples and make our annual maple syrup. So we're going to go on our little, you know, sugaring uh, vacation every spring, or we're going to go hunting every fall, or uh, we're going to go to the salmon runs, or we're going to go to where there's a specific resource. We'll go there for a week, gather what we need, and then come back home. Uh, examples from archaeology would be people like, uh, oh, I guess from archaeology would be the Pueblos people in the Pacific, um, American Southwest. And then we have the Neuer, who are uh, cattle herders in Africa, uh, who do exactly what I just said. They herd cattle around and uh, sell cattle uh, as their main occupation. And they're a very famous uh, tribal society studied by cultural anthropologists. And if you put in Neuer into uh, any search engine, you will come up with tons, uh, most of it written by Evans Pritchard and things like that. So. Archaeologically, uh, they're a lot more visible. We don't have to be lucky and bump into like a campsite, right? Even though bands don't really practice uh, no trace camping like we do nowadays, um, they would still be hard to find because you're looking for like a scatter of rocks on the underground, so it's hard. Tribes, because of their permanent villages, uh, usually make it a lot easier. They have structures, they have storage facilities. Interestingly, and we'll talk about this later, they don't have settlement hierarchy, and I'll get more into settlement hierarchy later, but usually, for us, it's really to see what is like the cap, if, in the unlikely or potentially more likely event of nuclear holocaust, and we all die, we're all evaporated, and then in, uh, you know, a thousand years, some aliens come down, and they look at our planet, they'll say, hmm, this, and they look at our region, they'll say, look at this place, this Chicago area. I see all these signs for Chicago. Look how big this city was. And then look at all the smaller towns around it. And then look at even the smaller villages around that, and then look at the little households. That's a settlement hierarchy. And it would be very clear to see, even though all the people are gone, that there were some cities that were much larger and more important and bigger than the smaller ones. 
Tribes are so small, though, that they don't have a settlement hierarchy. All the villages are approximately the same size and of the same importance. So the first towns and villages would have been like this. Can't read that at all, can you? Um, we use, um, we have a lot more evidence for tribal studies uh, that are called settlement studies. Basically, when you pick apart an entire settlement to look at how the landscape was used, right? We can see corrals here, perhaps a barn here, a living structure here, a garden here. We can get at that because they have permanent settlement. Um, and that can tell us a lot more about population density, uh, land use, um, things they had, what were they growing, what were they eating, what were they trading, right? We can get just so much more out of it because usually these things are um, more visible on the landscape, which is helpful for us. The cool thing also about um, tribes is that they start reusing cemeteries. Now, if you think about it, bands who are moving around the across the landscape as mobile hunter-gatherers, if you die, like, they're not going to carry your body around until you get back to the place where you bury everybody. They're going to bury you wherever you die, right? There's no point in carrying you around. But uh, now that we've become permanent settled people living on farms or uh, herding cattle or something, we're going to live in one place more permanently. And when people die, we should probably do something with them. So, you know, uh, dad died. Why don't we go bury him by where grandpa is buried, right? And then when you die, you go get buried by your parents, right? So something like that. Uh, so it, we start seeing burials in a specific ordered place, which is awesome for archaeologists, because then we can look at all kinds of things. Because burials are, burials are such, I think I mentioned this when we talked about uh, physical anthropology, burials are so great because they're kind of a pretty pure expression of the thoughts and beliefs of a society, right? Um, it's not the person that's buried there that's doing it, it's the people that are alive. And they think this is the proper way to bury someone. You know, in our society, more or less, generally six feet under in a cemetery space next to somebody else, for example. In a coffin, in a suit. It's all weird. Why are you in a suit? Who are you dressed up to impress? I don't know. Um, right? But other societies would be buried in a shroud, not in a box. Um, other societies would be cremated. Other societies, you'd be buried in on top of a little burial mound here. You get buried, and they level it off. And then when the next person buries, they bury them on top, and they level it off. And over time, you get these tall mounds showing how impressive your family is and how long they've been in the area. Neat, right? There's a lot of different ways to do it, but it is an interesting way for us to look at um, social beliefs. What, what do they get buried with? Perhaps uh, archaeologists in the future, especially if you're buried in a polyester suit that doesn't decompose, they're going to think that we're really into our suits, or dresses, or whatever you're buried in, right? Um, because that's all we're buried with, rather than buried with you know, food for the afterlife, or uh, our favorite item. They might think, I know it's always, it, sorry, it's a little macabre, but uh, like, you know, I, I remember 
when I was growing up, when a young kid would die, if they were like in hockey or soccer or something, sometimes they would bury them in their, in their, um, in their sports uniform, right? Um, I don't know what the archaeologists of the future are going to think about that. It's like up until 10 years old, they buried them in sports suits or, you know, shoes with blades on the bottom. What kind of weird ritual is this, right? Um, oh, uh, one note. Another neat thing about burials is that they can tell you social status. And uh, here we're starting to get differentiation between families. Some are becoming more successful over time than others. Um, and so we're getting higher status individuals. However, in a tribe, you'll never see a, well, you shouldn't see a child with a rich burial. Because even now, and I'll get to this when I talk about society uh, in tribes, you have to earn your status. Similar to a band, doesn't matter who your parents were to, for the most part, you have to show your own individual ability. And so a kid has no individual ability to generate a lot of income and have a lot of wealth. So when a kid dies, there's no reason to bury a kid with a lot of wealth. That changes in the next level where people start inheriting their wealth. And then you can have rich children who get buried with a lot of stuff. But that doesn't happen in tribes. But because we have these burials, it's very easy to tell that. Um, we start to see large, larger villages, you know, maybe a thousand people sort of thing. But nobody has a house that they and their family couldn't build themselves. The only structures large enough to, um, to require communal work are civic structures like a meeting house or a town hall or something like that. It wouldn't be a town hall. It would be just usually it would be a much larger version of that standard house. And that's where people would gather for celebrations or meetings or things like that. But that would be built by the community. But there weren't palaces. Your family, in a tribe, your family couldn't become so important and wealthy that I could say, hey, everybody, why don't you come and give me a month of labor to help me build my house? They'd say, I don't think so. <laughs> what do you think you are, a king? No, you're not. You're, you're just Joe Schmo in the tribe. You don't get to ask me to do that. Um, because people are permanent and living in one area, we start to see specialized, um, specialized production. So somebody who doesn't have to farm their whole life, they can, have, they can make pottery and sell that pottery or trade that pottery for food. You have people who become specialists at doing certain things. And so we see um, household organization and structures that are specific for the production of items. Um, in the past, before this, people, if they needed a pot, they would make their own pot, pottery. right? Uh, if, if they needed their own uh, cloth, they would weave their own cloth. Here we have people who spend their whole time making pottery or making uh, weaving cloth. So that's a change. Um, no. Chiefdom is the next one, but we're not going to get into chiefdoms because it's too close to the end of time, and it's the end of time. <laughs> who knows? Um. Thanks for listening to this low-tech lecture. Find out more by visiting our website, lowtechinstitute.wordpress.com. There you'll find the low-tech podcast, our blog, our event calendar, and other things going on around the Institute. 
you can subscribe to this lecture or our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and many other podcasting apps. The background music is Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2 in C minor and is in the public domain. This podcast is under the Creative Commons Attribution and Sharealike License, meaning you're free to use and share it as long as you provide credit.